Okay, welcome to episode two of the Steve Laidlaw podcast. I'm happy to be sitting down here with Ian Gooding, the managing editor of DauberHockey.com, my old stomping grounds. Ian, uh, great to have you on the episode. How are you doing? I'm doing all right, Steve. Uh, thanks for having me. Yeah, so I brought you on here to do the 1999 NHL draft redraft. Uh, in episode one, Peter Harling and I, we broke down 1997. That was a pretty decent draft for the 90s. We talked about how 95 and 96 are some of the worst drafts ever and uh, like unredraftable. And 1999, I don't think it's as bad as those drafts, but certainly it, it's a pretty bad draft. So uh, I'm sorry to stick you with this stinker. <laughs> Yeah, it, was, uh, it wasn't the best draft year. I, a funny thing was when I was uh, doing some research on it last night, I noticed that um, SI had called the 1999 draft one of the best ones that they've seen or one of the deepest drafts. And I couldn't believe that. I thought, man, that's so far off from the truth. I mean, this was not a great draft. Um, it has its stories, though. I mean, there were some interesting stories that came out of it, but in terms of first round picks, uh, it's not an impressive draft at all. I think when you, uh, when you look back, obviously, this is 20 years later now, a lot of things have improved where I don't think you would see a draft like this anymore. Obviously, there's more YouTube with more more people have the ability to, to watch videos now on, on players. So there's less unknown quantities, plus analytics have improved a lot. You've been doing analytics in, you know, junior leagues. So they can sort of track players, future performance, uh, sort of weed out players that might be a bit fluky, may not translate well in, in, into the big leagues, but yeah, this was not an impressive draft in my opinion. Yeah, I, I had read that anecdote about this being one of the better drafts as well, and I, I just cackled. Where were you at in 1999 in terms of following the draft, in terms of following hockey? Like, this is 1999. We just had uh, Brett Hull's foot in the crease to win the Stars, their first and only Stanley Cup. Where were you at, Ian? Well, I was listening to your podcast with Peter before, and I'd say I was in a very similar spot. I had just finished university. I was on my first career. I was living in Kelowna at the time. Um, my fandom was kind of, I wouldn't say it was at its highest point. Uh, part of that, I think, was because the NHL was in the middle of the dead puck era. And I thought that a lot of games, even playoff games, some of them were unwatchable they weren't just it didn't entertain me as much as it as games had in the past um, part of that being a Canucks fans as well is that we were right in the middle of the Mike Keenan uh, Mark Messier era which might have been the darkest period in Canucks history when it comes to both performance and expectations so it wasn't a great time I know for the, the draft myself I do remember watching it I was watching it at a, at a buddy's place it was um, Pacific time it started at I think nine in the morning Saturday morning so I think we were uh, um, I think out partying the night before and I think I crashed at his place and then we got up had an early breakfast while we uh, watched the Sedins get drafted. <laughs> 
Well, so you you probably have a better perspective on this draft, uh, j at least just in retrospect. Certainly, I've done my research, but uh, yeah, as I mentioned on the previous pod, I was I was just a young guy in the '90s, so '99 uh, draft puts me at about 12. So I probably figured out to stop picking my nose by then. But uh, other other bodily changes were happening, so I, I I was dealing with a lot, and maybe maybe the NHL draft wasn't wasn't totally on my radar at that time. I think I think the story of the of the '99 draft, like you alluded to, some dark times for the Canucks. Um, but this is a draft where where things can really turn around for them, and basically the story of this draft is the Sedin twins and, and the series of trades that Brian Burke pulls off to to land them in the draft. So, what do you remember from these trades, Ian? Well, it just the uh, at the time, I mean, as I was a, in my early 20s, I don't think I had really processed all of the trades that Brian Burke made. I in fact, I you know, until recently when I was just looking up the information, I don't even remember all of these trades. I do remember the first trade though, which got them that second pick, which was trading of, of Brian McCabe to Chicago. I mean, the Canucks were um, as, you know, as bad as things were, were assembling a pretty good young defense at the time um, where they had Matthias Olin, they had Adrian O'Coin, they had another defenseman who's, uh, escapes me right now um but they also had mccabe so mccabe seemed ex expendable like it didn't seem like uh the kind of trade where oh my goodness they're you know that why what are they doing trading mccabe they had actually gotten mccabe from the islanders along with todd bertuzzi in the trevor linden deal which was another trade that despite Canuck fans' anguish over losing maybe their favorite all-time player, uh, worked out extremely well for the Canucks, um, both in terms of net result. They, you know, Bertuzzi was obviously one of the top power forwards in the league for a number of years, uh, eventually used him to trade to get Luongo, and they, and McCabe, obviously they used him to, um, to turn around and get the pick that they needed to get the other Sedin. But looking back, that was uh, some magic by Brian Burke making that that trade to be able to to draft both of them. Yeah, we talked about it on the 97 pod. Mike Milbury drafts Eric Brewer, uh, number five overall in that draft, and then proceeds to boast about how the Islanders have the best young defense in the NHL, Brian McCabe being a part of that. And then within a year, he's traded Brian McCabe to the Canucks because apparently, I guess he was just overloaded with talent. But uh, I, I guess we'll get to Milbury later in this draft. I just want to make the point, uh, though, that, you know, I'm, I'm going to smash Milbury quite a bit over, over the series of these podcasts. But it's worth noting that the ownership situation that the Islanders were going through was incredibly detrimental. I can only imagine how much input they had on on the types of swings that he made every single year. And he was always involved. So you got to give him credit for having like giant cojones on, on the deals that he was pulling off. And you have to understand that the GM job is less about putting together a Stanley Cup champion. And it's more about keeping your owner happy. And so ownership is, is the single most important part of the NHL. And you know, certainly the job is to keep your owner happy while also accomplishing the goals of keeping your fans happy and putting a winning product on, on the ice and all that stuff. But uh, 
certainly I, I think there are many ownership situations in the NHL, e even today, that uh, managers, they're just not going to be able to win in those environments. But so you broke down uh, a trade number one that gets Vancouver the number four pick in the draft. They trade Brian McCabe and the choice of either a 2000 first or a 2001 first unprotected to Chicago and they get the number four overall pick. So now they've got number three and number four. And we should mention that Chicago, uh, they were sitting at number eight going into the draft lottery and then they win the lottery and move up four spots to number four. So a lot of this gets brought about because of some ping pong balls and then some, some massive dealing. So trade number two, Vancouver trades number four overall and two thirds to the Tampa Bay Lightning for the first overall pick. And this is two years in a row that Tampa Bay has the first overall pick, but they trade back. And Brian Burke breaks this all down on the Tim and Sid show. I think like maybe just a couple of months ago, it was, it was when everyone was talking about uh, the Sidians in their big retirement ceremonies. And I guess this trade doesn't get done until the draft floor, like right before the draft. And I guess they've been haggling over whether uh, it should be a second and a fourth or the two thirds. And then finally, Rick Dudley, who is like, this is his first week as GM of the Lightning. Like, I, I don't even think he's officially named their GM, but certainly they, they figured out that he's going to be their GM. They, they agree to this trade because Rick Dudley has already turned around and, and traded the pick to the New York Rangers before they'd even officially agreed on it. But uh, we'll get to that one later. So now the Canucks have number one and number three, and they're also trying to get number two from Atlanta. They want to pick one, two, and three that take the, the top three guys in the draft, the Sedins, and they also want Patrick Steffen. Don Waddell doesn't want to trade the pick. Like this is this is Atlanta's first ever draft. They're trying to build a franchise. They had just done the expansion draft the day before. They're determined not to trade their pick. So he's like, well, we're, we're here on the draft floor. Your owner's here, Ted Turner. So why don't you trade up with us? Take number one, agree to not to take a Sedin twin, and you can have number one and be the first ever expansion team to draft first overall so you just jedi mind tricks them into uh giving him an extra third round pick to move up to number one to take the player he was going to end up with anyway yeah it was kind of interesting i thought that the lightning pick the lightning trade sounded like it was the hardest one to make because burke had been working on that for a while and it sounded like uh, the talks with him and Dudley kind of ended at a, at a stalemate. Apparently, uh, didn't say such nice things to each other. I was listening to the same uh, Tim and Sid interview with Brian Burke as uh, as you were, and it's quite uh, Brian Burke is uh, really entertaining to listen to. But then, as soon as they made the trade with the Lightning, it sounded like the trade with with Atlanta was a lot easier because I think Burke had figured out that he was uh, that that Don Waddell was going to pick Patrick Steffen first overall, that he wasn't, um, he wasn't looking at either uh, Daniel or Henrik. Um, something that was mentioned at the time too, is that uh, uh, there was some doubt as to whether one of the Cedines should be the first overall pick um, because it was thought they, 
their world junior championship wasn't that great. Maybe there was other, you know, other players here. Um, obviously, they, they weren't, neither one of them were the consensus to go first overall. But it's not like this, this trade was with Atlanta that the Canucks made was actually done 10 minutes before the draft started. So really, uh, you know, Burke got this done in the nick of time. Well, yeah, because he doesn't even get the, the deal with Tampa Bay done until right before the draft. So it's all last minute flying by the seat of your pants. Would you say this is Brian Burke's most impressive feat as a GM? You know what? I think it is. I really do. Even if you take into account the fact that he's won a Stanley Cup in Anaheim. However, that was only his second season with the Ducks. There's other other trades that he's made i was looking back and burke himself doesn't think that this is his most impressive feat he said that the trade that he made he was the gm of the hartford whalers to acquire chris chris pronger back in 1993 was uh was his most impressive in that deal um this was also in the interview with tim and sid uh he traded the uh, hartford had the sixth overall pick in that draft and san jose had the number two pick so he traded um burke traded sergey makarov that sixth overall pick um a second round pick from that draft and a third round pick from that draft for the second overall pick. I mean, just to move up four spots, that's a, um, that's, that's a very significant haul, but he made that trade for Pronger. Uh, obviously that was the right move for the Whalers. Too bad they didn't hold on to Pronger longer than they did, although they got Brendan Shanahan in that, in that trade with St. Louis. But he said that, uh, I guess he uh, described I think he described the Sharks GM, Dean Lombardi, as kind of a prick when making that deal. So, um, but, it, it, you know, when you look at that, those three trades, I think just the amount of creativity involved to be able to think way outside of the box, to make those three deals, to get that, to get both of those picks that way. I mean, that that's impressive. I just think if something like that happened on Twitter, Twitter would literally blow up today if a GM were able to pull off three deals like that to get the Sedins like that's yeah I, I believe that that's his um that that's his best feat ever as a GM I think his his uh his apex is probably threatening to rent out a barn to fight Kevin Lowe but that's just me <laughs> all these trades they even the Chicago deal they hold back on it. So they made the deal like a week beforehand, but they don't actually submit it to the NHL until the day of the draft. So all these trades have to get announced before the draft even like gets going. So Gary Bettman steps up to the podium and, and, and in classic fashion, uh, the crowd boos him uh, as they are wont to do as is tradition. And Bettman as only Bettman can do with that smirk we have a trade to announce and then immediately everyone goes silent and he's just got them eating out of the palm of his hand. And then he goes on and on. And it's just like dizzying the number of trades that take place. And this is just a, a phenomenal moment. Um, it's, it's really hard to dig, a, dig it up on YouTube, but you can find it. And, and I highly recommend digging it up because it's, it's delicious bet. So as we said, the draft order gets thrown into the, the washing machine as a result of these trades. So how, how it goes down, uh, the, the, the actual draft order. Atlanta, they get the number one pick. They take 
Patrick Steffen. And I guess we should probably talk about him now because I'm guessing we're probably not going to get to him in the redraft. So, I mean, he's going to be forever known as an all-time draft bust. And then, of course, missing that empty net goal against Edmonton. Uh, any other legacy for, for Patrick Steffen, you think, Ian? Yeah, I remember the, I, I guess the most notable career achievement was the missed empty net goal, the one uh, when he played for Dallas. And I remember that, I remember that exact play, you know, the gimme empty netter. And, uh, and then I think it was Alice Emsky who skates down the ice for the Oilers and scored the game time goal. So he definitely wore the goat horns on that one. Um, Patrick Steffen was interestingly enough, he was, you don't, not really going to see the, anymore because usually players play in some sort of junior league but he was drafted out of the old IHL uh, playing for Long Beach of the IHL and if you remember I don't know if you remember the IHL at all but the uh, um, during the lockout in the 90s uh, the first one uh, there was uh, I remember watching IHL games Okay, while, while there was no NHL, which was kind of interesting because you had to these interesting teams with uniforms like, you know, the Detroit Vipers. And I think there was a team from Las Vegas as well and all these other uh, all these other interesting places. So I think Radic Bonk was actually drafted out of the IHL as well. That's something that's one thing I remember about Patrick Stefan. Something else when I was digging up a bit of information is that he I didn't know this, but uh, he also had some concussion problems and that may have factored into why he was the bust that he was, which is unfortunate. Yeah. And like, let's be clear. He plays 400 career NHL games. Um, you, you mentioned the IHL, like it, you'd, you'd want to beat up on the IHL because he scores a point per game there as a 17 year old in his draft year. But I mean, we saw the Bruins a couple of years earlier uh, score big time with Samsonov out of the IHL. So I don't think, I don't think we should beat up too hard on that. I think it's just a guy who, who got a bit derailed by injuries. He scores like 25 points in 72 games as, as an 18 year old rookie in the NHL. And this isn't out of place for number one overall picks. The year before Vincent LeCavalier, he, he doesn't do anything. And we talked about on the 97 pod, Joe Thornton gets caught playing eight minutes a night and is in the press box for a third of the league's games and he scores seven points in like 55 games. So, you know, it was not out of, out of place for an 18 year old rookie to go number one and then struggle out of the gate. But yeah, he never really gets it together and he's out of hockey within 10 years of this draft. Uh, Eventually a hip issue just, just takes him out of hockey entirely, but he has that, that bad moment against Edmonton, but no one remembers Dallas actually ended up winning that game in, in the shootout and Edmonton goes on to do diddly squat that season and Dallas is in the playoffs. So yeah, just one, one of those moments that, that will forever live on, but uh, you know, it, it's a tough legacy for, for someone who, who probably if, if we play his career out a hundred times, he, he's probably a success in at least half of them. Yeah, and it's good that you mentioned the, I guess the lack of points to to start out. The twenty five points in seventy two games in his first season, and thirty one and sixty six in his uh, second season, because um, the Sedins themselves were not 
overwhelmingly successful in their first few seasons in the NHL either. And that's something we have to remember is these guys, uh, even getting drafted first, second, third overall, are not going to turn to instant stu- superstars right out of the gate. Not unless it's like a g- generational type of player like Sidney Crosby or Connor McDavid. We should not be expecting that every year. Mm-hmm. And also, like, probably not a good thing for 18-year-olds stepping out onto the ice and, and being allowed to be cross-checked and speared by 34-year-old men who, who spend the entire off-season pounding the weights. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah, so- that's for sure. It's a, it's a bit of an eye-opener for, uh, for, the, for these youngsters. It, it's, it's a whole different level of games. Mm-hmm. So moving along here, Vancouver... They take the Sedins, two and three, Daniel and, and then Henrik. At four, the New York Rangers, who end up with that, that fourth overall pick uh, after getting traded from Chicago to Vancouver and then to Tampa Bay. They trade with Tampa Bay. They agree to give up Dan Cloutier, Nicholas Sundstrom, and their first rounder in 2000, as well as a, a third rounder in 2000 for this pick. And they take Pavel Brendel, who, again, I'm not sure that we're going to be talking about him later in this redraft pod. So maybe we get into his legacy here. Um, Were you up on Pavel Brendel at, at this point in your hockey fandom? Yeah, to be honest with you, I thought that this was the player that the Canucks were going to pick, um, mainly because he's, you know, I'm out west and you know, follow the WHL a little bit, and uh, he was he was a star for the Calgary Hitmen. He had a he had a very good season actually for for a Calgary Hitmen team that I believe won the Memorial Cup that year. They lost um, in the final. Or lost in the final that they okay so maybe it was just the WHL that they that they had won that year but uh, he had a very very good year he had 134 points in 68 games 73 goals so at that time you're thinking wow this you know he he's going to be an NHL player you know his production dipped a little bit in his uh, I think in his last two seasons he played two more seasons with the Hitman it seemed to drop a little bit um, after that just didn't really pan out in the NHL. He didn't even play a game for the Rangers. He got traded to the Flyers uh, where he spent most of his NHL games. He didn't even make it to a hundred games. So, um, you know, spoiler alert, he's not going to be in our top, you know, he wasn't in my top 15. So, (laughs) which is unfortunate. You know, this is a player who had come over from the Czech Republic. Um, that certainly was expecting much, much bigger things from Pavel Brendel. Uh, the time I thought this was the player that the Canucks were going to target and that didn't, that didn't happen. And I guess, uh, that turned out a good thing for the Canucks. Yeah, you mentioned that he doesn't even play a game for the Rangers. After making the pick, Neil Smith predicts that he's going to be the leading scorer in New York for the next 10 to 15 years. That that, that did not happen. Maybe a, uh, a bad omen that they describe him at, at the draft as loving hot dogs and the occasional donut, as well as sleeping 12 hours a day. But then again, at, <laughs> at 18, I don't think a- anyone doesn't qualify for that. Maybe that's translated to today. That's maybe likes to play video games at all hours of the night. Yeah, yeah. We'll be slamming Patrick Line for, for playing video games. 
when his job is to just yeah. not damage his body. Um, <laughs> so, so moving along, we have the New York Islanders up at number five. They take Tim Connolly. Just a little note on this pick. So the Islanders had actually tied with Vancouver for the third worst record in the league, but they lost a tiebreaker. So they fell to number four. And then when Chicago wins the lottery, they fall to number five. So a little bit of, of bad luck in the lottery this year, but uh, they make it up tenfold the, the following years. Nashville coming off their first year in the league, they select goaltender Brian Finley, pretty high for a goaltender. And this, this kicks off a, a seven year run of goaltenders getting picked high in, in the lottery of the NHL draft. And most of those work out. So Finley is a bit of a poster boy for the don't draft goalies in the first round crowd, uh, of which I'm a big proponent of. But uh, I think it's less to do with the, the hit-miss rate and more to do with the amount of time it takes for that investment to pan off. Like, I, I think in the first round, you're looking at about a 50-50 shot um, with a goaltender, and, and that's not so different than the hit rate on on players outside the uh, the top 10 to 15 in the draft. But it takes like a forward, sometimes three years, and a defenseman maybe up to five. And sometimes with goalies, it takes like seven. And it, it's just more difficult to project. So as much as high lottery goaltenders ha have hit in the past, I'm still not a proponent. And, and I guess Finley's a reason why. Uh, do you remember anything about uh, a Finley at all? Not really. I, I do remember him getting picked early, um, but I couldn't really tell you much else about Finley other than that. Um, yeah, six overall pick, and he plays four career NHL games. So in terms of reasons that you would not pick a goalie um, as, as, as a top 10 pick, I mean, this he would be right at the, at the top of the list. I mean, obviously there's been other goalies that have been picked high that have been uh, had much much more successful careers you know somebody like Roberto Luongo would come to mind I mean Marc-Andre Fleury was the first overall pick in his draft so I'm, I mean it can work uh, but in this case it was it was it was unfortunately Finley was a complete bust yeah and, and apparently he tears his groin when he's about to turn pro and loses an entire year. And I mean, th like this back in, in the early 2000s when we didn't have the same type of protocols for recovering from surgeries. So, you know, who knows, he might be back uh, much faster and, and able to, to kickstart his career and really build some confidence. He ends up putting up some decent numbers in, in the minors in, in the AHL, but uh, yeah, never puts together the, the confidence or, or consistency you know, for a franchise in Nashville that had so much success with journeyman goaltenders and bringing them in and the Barry Trotz and Mitch Korn system that is still cooking today. Uh, now, now uh, with the Islanders, it's funny that uh, they invest so highly in a goaltender and it doesn't really work out. Yeah. It's a surprise. I mean, they ended up uh, finding their goalies. Nashville is always had good goaltending or it seemed like um, we can think back to Thomas Volkun and uh, Pekka Rene had a run good run of over a decade here uh, maybe UC Saros is, is coming up though maybe that's why they don't get as criticized as much for the um, for, for the Finley pick I mean if it was a 
you know, if, if it was a positional need for them specifically throughout their this time, then I, I would say we would probably be talking about this a whole lot more, but uh, because they found good goalies otherwise, then that I don't think that's why we probably haven't heard a lot of Brian Finley. Mm-hmm. So at number seven, the Washington Capitals take Chris Beach, uh, who was also on that Hitman team that Brendel was on. And it sure seems like the WHL that year was just fool's gold because there's not a whole lot of hits in in this draft class coming out of the WHL. Yeah, um, yeah. Chris Beach played for that Calgary Hitmen team as well. He's another player I thought that the Canucks might have their eye on, interestingly enough. In terms of games played, he had a bit more of a career than Pavel Brendel did. Um, he got close to 200 games, but and that's uh, that's not really saying much. Um, he also kind of bounced around. He, um, I think, it was traded to Pittsburgh within a few seasons. Um, traded for Yager. That's right. Yes, yes, I, I remember seeing that now. And then he went back to Washington. Uh, he went back to Washington. And then around 2007-08, um, went through waivers a bunch of times. He, uh, he got a cup of coffee with the Canucks, um, spent a bit of time with the Columbus Blue Jackets. So he got nine points in 16 games with the Blue Jackets, which wasn't bad. Not terrible, but for whatever reason, just couldn't stick around. Um, I think played in, in Europe for a little while, um, but just, yeah, again, um, just, just another pick from this, uh, from this early first round that did not pan out. Yeah, tough run for George McPhee at, at the draft in his first few years. Like his legacy is secure, being the architect of, of that Capitals team that that finally gets over the hump. But uh, his first draft in '97, he takes Nick Boynton. We talked about that on the '97 redraft pod uh, again with a lottery pick. They don't even sign him, so actually Boynton ends up back in this draft class, uh, going I think 21st overall to Boston. So yeah, not a great run for for George McPhee to to kick off his GMing career in Washington. Mm-hmm. Seemed to do all right after that though, but uh, but yeah, maybe a bit of a learning curve there. But again, I don't know if you can fault too many of these GMs because you look at some of the picks around. Oftentimes, when you go through drafts, you say, "Oh, uh, this team picked." player X who we've never heard of uh, when player Y was still available and was, was picked right after him. There isn't much of this in this draft at all. It's just, you know, we're talking about Brian Finley getting picked at number six and then Chris Beach being picked at number seven. I I mean, there were, there there were just a ton of misses on this in this draft. So, um, you know, that, that kind of maybe resolves the GMs a little bit here. No doubt. So, Coming up at number eight, the Islanders make their second pick of this draft lottery, and they take Taylor Pyatt, which a decent pick. You know, Canucks fans may may have some memories of him. He, you know, he goes on to have a pretty good career. He may get redrafted in our redraft, but uh, on our Mike Milbury hosts Joe Bluth, I've made a huge mistake corner. They get this pick as the result of trading Ziggy Palfi. Brian Smolinski, Marcel Cousineau, and, and a fourth rounder to the Kings for Ole Okunen, Josh Green, Mathieu Biron, and, and this pick that he takes Pyatt with. And, and that's actually a pretty good trade. Like, if you want to compare and contrast the careers that Ole Okunen and, and Palfi have after 
this trade takes place, like it's it's reasonably comparative, but I, I think ultimately Poffy has the better career. What do you think, Ian? Yeah, it's probably not his worst trade when we're talking about Millbury trades here. Um, Jokinen, you know, turned out to be a, a good good return. Unfortunately, there was a later trade that Millbury made where he parted with Jokinen and uh, Luongo to Florida for. Uh, I remember you mentioning this this trade with with Peter. It was uh, Mark Parrish and was the other play Oleg Kavasha. Oh yes, it was. So uh, another. Uh, incident of Mike Milbury hosts Joe Bluth. I've made a huge mistake. <laughs> we have the Luongo yeah. and Jokinen tree. Yeah. So, I mean, Milbury, I was just going to say, Milbury is like that. In, in your fantasy league, you probably have that one GM um, that seems to be making a trade like at least once a week. Like, just never, never seems happy with the team. And as you said, that was driven by ownership, and, and that's fine. But this, you know, this, this is what you see, is you see a GM that is continually not happy with his team that just makes trade after trade after trade. I mean, some of them are going to work. Some of them aren't. But the end result is by making all these trades, you're really not improving your team. And, <laughs> you know, it, it just might be more of a, what have you done for me lately? Um, I'm not willing to wait a few years to see how these trades pan out but it's, I need to see instant results. And if I don't see those instant results, then I'm going to make another trade. And that's the sign of an impatient owner. Yeah, it's a, the treadmill of mediocrity. <laughs> so up at number nine, the Rangers, with their own pick, decide to trade up in this draft uh, to, to land themselves another pick out of the WHL in Jamie Lundmark. And as, as the WHL was wont to do, they did not produce much of an NHLer with this pick. Uh, so that trade, they move up from number 11 to number nine, trading with the Flames, and, and it proves rather costly. So they trade Mark Savard and, and number 11 for number nine, the rights to Jan Holovich. And they're supposed to get a third rounder from this draft, number 77 overall. But uh, inexplicably, that pick never changes hands. I don't know if it was conditional. Like, the pick's ultimately irrelevant in this. But Mark Savard is an immediate hit for the Flames, although they, too, never never fully realize his potential. Yeah, that was a, kind of an interesting, uh, interesting trade. I don't remember a whole lot from Lundmark, either. You know, just got in just under 300 NHL games. So he had a, a bit of a career there. Another pick from the WHL where he played for the Moose Jaw Warriors and, uh, and Seattle Thunderbirds. Um, so it was a, not a big uh, pick. Now, you said that they, uh, um, they swapped the ninth and the 11th overall picks then, right? Yes. The Flames. And, okay, so we'll talk, maybe talk about Oleg Sigprikin here. But, uh, but yeah, it was... Uh, I remember, yeah, Savard with the Flames, um, pretty pretty good score. But again, these teams it seem to be a lot of trades being made uh, during during this time for whatever reason. Maybe GMs just not or owners not happy with their teams. So you know, and that's why you maybe see these players that involved in these deals. Oh, they get so and so. That's that's a good trade. But unfortunately, that player did not stick with that team because the GM made another trade. <laughs> And speaking of that, the, the Islanders make another appearance at, at number 10, taking Branislav Mezai, who I'm not sure if I'm pronouncing that correctly, 
he played 240 NHL games, which is which is a, a solid amount, and I do not remember him at all. Yeah, I can't much offer much on him either. Uh, slightly fewer games than than Lundmark. I, I mean, they they did turn out to play have NHL careers. These guys, Branslav Mazai, did not play. Just looking at his page here, did not play more than 40, 50, Actually, no, his last season he played fifty-seven games. So, I mean, this this looks like a guy who was kind of in between the NHL and the AHL a bit or maybe had been healthy scratched a number of times so so even though he did play over 200 games it's really hard to say that he was a a full-time NHL at at any point in his career unfortunately so yeah three three picks for the Islanders in that in, in the first and you would think at the time maybe at that time in 1999 the Islanders were maybe viewed as big winners in the draft because they had so many draft picks but you know a cautionary tale here is that just having a lot of draft picks doesn't mean that they're they're all going to turn out I mean there is you know you look at any team's prospect um, pipeline and you know you could say I'm excited about this player that player and that player but the truth is is they're not all going to turn out they're not all, not all these players are going to pan out and become full-time NHLers in the top six of your forward lines or the top four, top four D defensemen. They're, they're just not, some of them will, um, but there, there will be the ones that, that fall off and just don't meet that potential that they seem to have. Yeah. The, the treadmill mediocrity again strikes. This is the middle of a, a seven year stretch where the Islanders don't make the playoffs. And uh, we didn't get to it, but uh, Mike Milbury hosts Joe Bluth. I, I just made a huge mistake. Once again, uh, this pick was acquired from Montreal at the draft uh, in exchange for Trevor Linden, who you mentioned previously had been previously acquired uh, in exchange for youngsters Brian McCabe and Todd Bertuzzi in a failed attempt to, to load up for a playoff run that did not happen. So up at number 11, Calgary traded back. They get Oleg Saprikin, and you have to consider this draft a success for them uh, just because of getting Savard uh, in exchange for trading back. And, you know, Saprikin has a, a decent career as a bottom six winger. Uh, do you remember anything about him, Ian? Um, I do remember a little bit. I was going to say he was on the Flames during their 2004 Stanley Cup run. He wasn't a probably checked out more as a if I remember correctly if any teams fans are listening probably more of as a third line player at that time so not you know not a Jerome McGinley stature type of player or anything like that but he he was on that team he was along for the ride um, did contribute uh, to that team so there was uh, you know so they got a bit of mileage out out of him. Looked like he went on to Phoenix uh, for a couple of years after that, and then finished out his career very briefly with uh, with Ottawa. So he did have um, you know, finished with just over 300 games, which, if you look at all players that are draft, might be about might be about average. And you referenced that uh, that run to the Cup final in 04 for Calgary. He actually scores the overtime winner in Game Five to put the flames up three, two in that series. And, and they wouldn't ultimately seal the deal. I, I'm sure flames fans ha, ha, still feel like they got robbed there a little bit, 
but uh, ultimately like a huge moment for that franchise certainly the most relevant moment they have had uh, since this draft so a hit in the 99 draft um, <laughs> up at number 12 florida using their own pick takes dennis schvidke uh, i know nothing of him number 13 the oilers take yanni rita out of finland they'd had some success there in the past but uh, let's take a, a second here to admire the last five years of draft work from the legendary Glenn Sather. In 95, at number six overall, they take Steve Kelly. 96, at number six, they take Boyd Devereaux. Okay, you know, he was a pro. 97, we talked about it on the 97 redraft. At number 14, they take the Swiss shooter who shoots as well as Yari Curry, uh, Michelle Reason. Uh, in 98, at number 13, they take Michael Henrik, and, and then they take Rita here in 99. So for, for Glenn Sather, I think this is a masterclass of you either die young or live long enough to see yourself become the villain. Geez, I thought in that group you were going to also go back to maybe go back, I think, one year to 1994 when the Oilers drafted it. The fourth overall pick, Jason Bond Sr., um, oh god! I could see that because I remember seeing him play in a in an exhibition game when I was going to university in Kamloops. The Oilers and the Canucks played a uh, a preseason game, so you know, thinking that he was uh, going to be um, a future Oiler sniper, but uh, um, but that didn't really turn out for him. So you know, draft busts, um, you know, is didn't just happen in 1999, but yeah, that's uh, yeah for you know the architect of the greatest teams all time that was uh you know that was quite a 180 in terms of draft success yeah and i think uh i think this is sather's last draft uh, uh with the oilers as gm and apparently their scouting director at the time was like notorious for going on vacation to i think he, go, he goes down to like florida or mexico or something like that uh to sit on the beach during these drafts instead of actually doing his job so that's really uh, <laughs> <laughs> wow I, I can't confirm these things but uh, i read many an article about it so i'm not going to shout out the guy's name uh for fear that i have my facts wrong and certainly have, this is all half-assed internet research i was gonna say does he have provocative pictures of Sather somewhere or what <laughs> is he allowed to take a holiday at the most important time of year yeah, I'm, I'm not sure on these facts, so I, I can't prove it, but uh, it's rumored. And, and give it, given the state of the franchise in, in the late 90s, I, I wouldn't rule it out for the Oilers. Um, number 14, San Jose takes Jeff Gilson. And then at number 15, the Coyotes take Scott Kelman, which is notable. He, he never plays a game. This is the in the middle of a seven-year run where – Teams picking 15th overall get Bubkiss. I don't know if you've ever looked at the the draft value charts that uh, that people have put out over the years, and for whatever reason, there's a massive spike downward in terms of draft value that teams got out of the number 15 pick, and it's because apparently no one could draft anyone good for like a seven-year stretch. Mm. And interesting. Uh, yeah, and so Phoenix acquires this pick. They trade Tverdovsky for Green and this pick. Um, oh, okay. But but Tverdovsky is is ultimately the prize. Um, 
I think he, he goes on to have a couple of 50-point seasons uh, for Anaheim and wins a couple of cups with the Devils and Carolina. So that's what we're looking at for what actually happened in 99. And you can kind of see why this was the worst draft ever. I, I don't <laughs> yeah. know. It's, it, it's got some good stuff going on. You know, some names who, who actually get drafted in this draft, uh, just to kind of set up what we're about to be doing. Zetterberg, he goes like, I think in the seventh round. So does Radium Verbata. So does Martin Erat. Ryan Miller's in here. Martin Havlat is ranked right behind the Sedins by Central Scouting, but he doesn't go until the 26th to Ottawa. Chris Kelly's in there. Mike Commodore, Douglas Murray. I don't know, some guys who had some pro careers. We mentioned Nick Boynton's back in here. Uh, Jordan Leopold's a second rounder. Ryan Malone. We, we got some stuff to pick from, but it's certainly not the most fruitful draft. So at number one, picking for Atlanta, I want to pick number one for, well, I'm going to make the pick and you, you guys will understand why I wanted to pick number one. So for number one, Atlanta Thrashers, first ever pick, I'm taking Henrik Zetterberg. All right. So you were on the same page as me because I did the exact same thing as you did. I, I imagine an alternate universe where um, the trades were actually made the way they were, but the players in place might have been different. So Brian Burke still made all those trades um, to get the to get the Sedins. Atlanta would get the first overall pick, and using revisionist the revisionist history here, um, they would pick Zetterberg with the uh, with the first overall pick. So I I can't fault you on this one at all. That uh, um, it was, in fact, exactly what I was thinking myself. Yeah, and I'm not even thinking that necessarily like Atlanta has to agree to not touch the Sedins. But my question is, like those two did twins coming together. It's, it's almost unprecedented in sports. Their powers together were duplicative. It's like peanut butter and jelly. Like they're, they're kind of good on their own, but like way better. Put together so I don't want to take the chance like again the agent was involved I don't know if one of them's not going to sign or whatever I think the Sedins had better careers but I'm not risking upsetting the apple cart if I'm making the first ever picked for my franchise it, it takes Zetterberg a couple of years to come over so in the revisionist history I'm still getting Danny Heatley number two in 2000 and I'm still taking Kovalchuk number one the next year and suddenly, like, I'm cooking with gas here because I, I didn't take a risk on only grabbing one Sedin and maybe neither of them has even remotely the career that they would have had separate. So do you think, Ian, do you think that they would have been the same or would they have been much worse if they, if they had been separated? Uh, I think they would have been a bit worse. They wouldn't have been the same players. Um, had they played on separate teams, I didn't think. I don't think they would have reached the at the accomplishments in their career that they would have had they been on separate teams. But they're still by themselves. 
um, as they proved when one was injured, the other could still be um, a fairly effective player. But that's what they call in Vancouver the sedinary. Um, that would uh, never have happened. Um, they were very, even when they were both, both healthy and in the lineup, uh, obviously it's, um, there's no shock to anybody, but they were almost never split up. Um, one particular coach who did split them up um, for a time was John Tortorella, who really wasn't afraid to try anything. Heck, he was, you know, he wanted up there blocking shots and everything. So, um, but this did not work. Um, but I think that kind of tells you that, you know, they were, you know, best used together, even if they, even if they hadn't quite put up the results at any given stretch that, uh, uh, that they thought they would. So really the key to their success was that, I guess you'd call it synergy to know, have that ability to communicate telepathically, to know where, where the other was on the ice, uh, sort of that, that nonverbal sort of understanding, um, probably from the time that they were kids to know where they were and to continually cycle the puck. You may have seen on YouTube some of their shifts where they were continually cycle the puck. They would have it for like a minute or even longer. You may have watched goals that they had scored against, you know, regular divisional opponents like Edmonton and Calgary or two that come to mind where they where they had those long stretches where they were just playing keep away with puck and uh, the other team was just pinned in their own zone, even though they weren't, you know, trying to snipe it in, in the goal immediately, they were still trying to, they, they were, you know, they, they still had the puck and, you know, the other team couldn't make that important line change because they were so pinned, but they eventually would, would score. So, so that's, I would say, no, they're not going to hit the heights that they were. There's impressive players on, on their own, but it's, um, the whole is going to be greater than the sum of its parts here. Yeah, I think we're kind of simpatico in, on that. And, and, you know, we talked a lot about the city, and so I just want to, like, reinforce, like, Setterberg was, he was legit. I remember him for some crazy goals of, you know, batting pucks out of the air. He has one, I think it's against like Anaheim or something, and he's not even facing the net or the puck, and he spins around and whacks it out of the air top shelf. And it's one of the most unbelievable goals I've ever seen. He only ever has one truly elite season, but that season – is up there with like as as good as it gets in 0708 he's fifth in goals with 43 sixth in points with 92 he only finishes 10th in heart voting but he makes second team all-star so he's he's the named the number two center in the league he finishes third in selkie voting and then he leads the playoffs in scoring wins the con smythe and, and the only cup of his career and in that playoffs, like in that in that cup final, he's the best player in a series with Crosby, Malkin, Hosa, Gonchar, Datsuk, and Lidstrom. This guy yeah, had an incredible. That's pretty peak. impressive company right there. And that was, yeah, looking at his stats, that was the best year of his career. Um, having that talent around with a, that other late round pick that Detroit, Pavel Datsuk, I think really, really helps Zetterberg as well. But Zetterberg was just more of a, it seemed like more of a quietly effective player. He didn't have those you know, the, those dangles that you could just sit and watch all day with, uh, with Datsuk. But, you know, but still just 
you know, a really effective player um, you know, for a very, very strong, good player for a long period of time. Yeah, you talked about the Sedins wearing players out and like Zetterberg very much cut from the same cloth. Like he played that type of game. He was, you know, he wasn't huge, but he played huge. He, uh, he was a puck protection type of guy and he would, he would absolutely wear you out. He was, uh, he was quite worthy of the Selkie votes and he just happened to be the second best player, maybe the third best player on his team for, for a long stretch. And that's why the Red Wings were always in the mix for so many years with him. And we talk, you know, a lot about uh, players being built for the playoffs. And it sure seems like Zetterberg was a guy who was built for the playoffs. Not not just his, his Conn Smythe run there, but he has an eight-year run where he's better than a point per game scoring in the playoffs with 109 points in 107 games. And so he was like, you know, if you were doing fantasy drafts for the playoffs back in the in the mid 2000s there uh and around their their heyday he was a guy you were taking every year because he was money in the bank yeah there was a long stretch where i for every year for any playoff pools i was doing i was picking red wing players they were consistently at the top of my list and uh you know of that group obviously you have to consider datuk and, and Zetterberg. so uh that is impressive of that that playoff scoring of being over a point a game in the playoffs. I mean, sometimes it worked out with Detroit. Um, you know, sometimes it didn't. They, you know, for all their Stanley Cups, they seem to have an equal number of first round upsets where they were getting knocked out by a team like Anaheim or Edmonton, who were, you know, like a number seven or a number eight seed in that year. So I almost think that this Detroit team could have won more Stanley Cups than they did. But, uh, you know, sometimes the playoffs are, you know, don't don't always reward those strong regular seasons. But uh, but yeah, there's a lot to like about Zetterberg's career. And, you know, we could be looking at the Hockey Hall of Fame next. Yeah, and I mean, Zetterberg misses out on a second cup by one year. He doesn't come into the league until 0203. And that's the year after the Red Wings win that last cup with Iserman. And you referenced some of their, their playoff flameouts. In that Oilers series where they lose in 06 in six games in the first round, uh, number one to number eight, he scores six goals in six games. Mm. He was an absolute terror in the playoffs. Like if he had the puck, you knew it was getting transitioned to the offensive zone and then you were going to get run ragged for the next 45 seconds and you just pray that you can bank the puck out and get a line change. Mm-hmm. Yeah, there was no shortage of shot from that shot attempts from that Detroit team when they because you'd watch the games and you were like and I was sort of they were a team that I liked during that time they were you know, this, this team I would say I was a bit of a closet Red Wings fan during this time and uh, and I could say that it was it would be frustrating to watch when I think there was one particular game against Anaheim where I think J.S. Jaguar made 63 saves round series where uh, the one that I just talked about where uh, Anaheim upset Detroit. I think that was the year that Anaheim made made the finals and lost to New Jersey. Um, But it was just like, there was no, you know, it just, they did. I mean, in that series, I guess they ran into a hot goalie. They they ran into J.S. Shiger and in the Edmonton series, this was when, uh, you know, Dwayne Rolison was at the top of this game. Yeah. 
so I, I think that moves us to uh, the number two overall pick. You're up, Ian, Van picking for Vancouver. All right. Well, um, I think you know, I'm going to pick as a dean here. Um, if we're going on career achievements, I have to give the slight edge to Henrik. Um, but I'm going to make him the number two, the second overall pick, um, just because of his heart trophy and the fact that he was named the captain. So, yeah. Well, I mean, Daniel Sedin pretty much had a heart trophy. It just happens to be sitting in Corey Perry's closet. <laughs> yeah, good way to put it. Um, but Brian Burke, he says it himself. He took them in the wrong order when he announced them. I'm sure he was just doing it alphabetically, but uh, Henrik had the better career. So you reference the Hart Trophy. He gets Hart votes in four different years. He wins the Art Ross once. First team All-Star two times. He's got 110 point season. Sorry, it was 112. He's got another 90 point season, three other 80 point seasons and three other 70 point seasons. Uh, you referenced it. It took the Sedins a while to get going, but this guy was like guaranteed 60 assists for a, almost a decade, maybe a full decade. Yeah, yeah. He was an assist machine. Never a lot of goals from from Henrik. Um, that you wouldn't you wouldn't see. I mean, uh, um, if you look at his career, he had the ones the 112 point season. He had 29 goals, and that was a career high for him. He only one other season, which was the season before, had more than 20 goals. Um, aside from that, he was below. He was below 20 goals throughout his career. In fact, his final season where he pulled, played a full 82 games, uh, he scored just three goals. So ne never the goal scorer, but always um, you would always rely on him for assists. But certainly a Hall of Famer. Coming up at number three, I'm picking Vancouver's second pick and a no-brainer on this one, Daniel Sedin. He won a Ted Lindsay because Corey Perry stole his heart trophy. He only gets heart votes in that one season, though. Wins, wins the Art Ross that one season, a 100-point season. But he has three other 80-point seasons and three other 70-point seasons. Yeah, I agree. That was, uh, he was more the goal scorer. He had more goals during that 2010-11 season, the one where the uh, Canucks won the President's Trophy and came within game of winning the Stanley Cup. Um, he scored a career-high 41 goals. Um, also, it was above 30 a number of other times throughout his career. So a bit more of the sniper than uh, Henrik was. Um, both had the both seem to want just seem naturally more inclined uh to make the pass more than they wanted to shoot that was their um that, that was their style of play so yeah i mean slight differences to the uh the way they uh, henrik was a center daniel was a left winger uh so you uh you you saw more more goals from um from daniel but even though they don't win a cup like their their legacy is unimpeachable you would think, right, Ian? Yeah, for sure. I, you know, I, I would say they have to go into the Hockey Hall of Fame. Um, I know not everybody agrees, but I think you have the, you have the Hart Trophy from Henrik. You have the near Hart Trophy from Daniel. Um, just the way they uh, to carry their teams, um, the total, the total points from them um, as uh, as legacy players. I, you know, I, I would have to. I think put them into that category, the number of all-star games that they played in as well. Um, 
you know, and just, you know, class individuals both uh, on and off the ice. You're well said. So you're up number four, the New York Rangers. They've traded a future first for this. You, uh, you better hit a home run. Okay. Um, for this one, I am going to pick another former Canuck. Um, although he wasn't with the Canucks as long as Daniel Henrik were, definitely not 17 seasons. Uh, that former Canuck, although he's more known for uh, playing for at least one other team, that being Ryan Miller. Say the uh, the Rangers maybe are thinking ahead and need a long-term replacement for Mike Richter. Unfortunately, this um, in real life for Ryan Miller, uh, he is still technically active, but he's not signed after this season. So um, if this season shuts down, then we may have just seen the last of Ryan Miller. So you drafted a goaltender for them. And I mean, we aren't really considering team needs with these drafts. I, I talked about it on the 97 draft pod. NHL teams really shouldn't be drafting for need, even though we know that they do because they're picking players at 17, 18 years old. And, and this draft is proof of what a crapshoot that makes it. So drafting for need when these guys aren't going to arrive, Miller doesn't really arrive until after the lockout. So ultimately this would lead to a rather awkward situation with Lundqvist getting drafted the next year and those <laughs> two having to, having to duke it out. But I think you just you take the best player in, in a draft where there's not many of them. So I, I agree with you on Miller. Why, why are you taking Miller? Uh, taking Miller just because of his uh, uh, because of his career numbers. Uh, the fact that he has had a long uh, he has had a long NHL career. You look at his uh, one Vezina Trophy, and I think uh, you know a team taking a goalie this high would would expect that. Um, he's a top 20 goalie and wins. Uh, so he's had the, he's, he's had the long career. He's had a, a career, I guess, uh, when you factor in Dean's retirement as being almost as long as the Dean's career has, um, as well as, of course, you remember that he's, uh, during that season, during that uh, season where he won the Vezina Trophy, he was also Team USA's goalie. Uh, not that it would help an NHL team, but he uh, uh, led the uh, the Americans to win an overtime of a uh, of winning the gold medal. It was precariously close, if you remember that that game. Um, Iggy, the Americans, yeah, that's right, the Iggy goal. Yeah, I think Miller. He comes so close to. Uh, reaching the absolute pinnacle like certainly you reference that business season when he arrives the the sabers are, are a very very good team in the eastern conference but he isn't quite ready to carry them and then they start losing talent as he hits his peak towards towards 2010 but that 2010 season is it's rather remarkable mm -hmm. 41 wins five shutouts leads the league with over 36 goals saved above average finishes fourth in heart voting that year you, you mentioned the gold medal game did the 2010 olympics kind of burn out a whole bunch of really good teams uh, for the 2010 playoffs yeah i kind of wonder that um you know from a canucks perspective whether you know this was right in the middle of the season and you're uh you know all of a sudden you have to shift into do or die playoff mode oh you only have the whole country you know that that wants you to win so so no pressure here and uh i know with 
you know, this, you know, put a lot of pressure on somebody like Roberto Luongo, who backstopped Team Canada to gold medal. Um, this was a season where they lost in the second round to Chicago and had, you know, Luongo had, I think, a little case of the yips in, uh, in one or two of those games as well. So, uh, you know, you kind of had to, after winning that gold medal, you kind of had to get back to business and, oh, where did we leave off with our team? Um, you had sort of that natural you rivalry within teams as well. So, for example, Luong playing, you know, for Team Canada, and you had Ryan Kessler playing for Team USA. Um, they would have played out on uh, on some other teams as well. So, so yeah, I think that it's, you know, and this is one of the drawbacks of having the Olympics right in the middle of the season, uh, kind of stopping the NHL play. I love the Olympics, uh, but I don't like the fact that it stops the NHL season, I would actually, that's something as unpopular as this opinion might be. This is something uh, that I like the idea of the world cup more than I do the Olympics because at least the world cup, they can do that in the summertime. Yeah, I, I would, I, I love the Olympic too much, the Olympics too much. I, I don't want to get rid of it, but this, this is some fuel for that fire. Maybe just, I mean, with where teams are at in terms of using their goalie tandem so much smarter, they probably would, wouldn't have so much goalie burnout because you reference Luongo. He makes, you know, he's with Canada in the Olympics and he makes 68 starts. Miller, he's got to be burned out by the playoffs. They get upset by Boston, who is using the Rask-Thomas tandem that year. Uh, the two teams that make the finals that year, Philly is backstopped by the uh, indomitable Brian Boucher-Michael Layton tandem. And, and Michael Layton's in this draft, so m- maybe we take him later down j- just for that cup final appearance. And then Chicago wins the cup, the Huey-Niemi tandem. And I mean, anti-Niemi basically turns to dust after this playoff run. Yeah, that was uh, a very interesting ending battle, to be sure. I mean, in past seasons, you've, you know, I, I mean, the, the expression I remember for winning in the playoffs used to be goaltending 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 you needed to have that goaltender one that you could you rely on and um, in that particular final you had you know two you know maybe if you're incorporating Philly's goaltending tandem you had like three sort of no-name type of goalies uh, whereas these guys like Luongo and Miller were uh, because they were playing on the Olymp in the Olympics on top of playing 60, 70 games. So I mean, they must've been worn out by the time that the playoffs arrived. Uh, so I think that leaves me up at number five, picking for the New York Islanders. I'm going to take Martin Havlat. All right. I'll be honest, that's uh, who I had at that spot as well, <laughs> Martin Havlat. So I um, think that's a, um, that, that's a pick. I think in other draft years, I think he would have fallen a bit. I don't think you would uh, uh, be all the way up at number five. But I think considering the talent on here, I, would, uh, I don't think I would question this pick. Yeah, I love Havlat. He was pure sex on those Ottawa Senators teams. Um, like we're talking about those those types of forwards that would absolutely break your heart. Like, Hyper skilled, very injury prone, and and underutilized. He was the perfect mix for for the Sens, and they end up trading him 
because he's going to get expensive right uh, right before their their run to the cup final but he had he had some really big moments for that team he uh he scores i think three overtime winners throughout his career in in the playoffs and he sets up the series clinching uh or sorry a, a game clinching goal in the conference finals against jersey in 03 and you know the the senators teams pushed jersey to game 7 uh, in that playoff. So they were, they were right on the cusp multiple times. He was, he was a big part of that. And honestly, I think like, you know, he doesn't have the gaudy numbers because of how often he got injured. He only has one thirty goal season, one one seventy point season, but he had multiple huge moments on, on some good teams. Uh, he ends up in Chicago right before they go on their run of winning cups. And I think he, he really helps, uh, helps those young guys along there. I think he was ahead of his time because he takes an absolute pounding at the end of the clutch and grab era. And I just wonder with, with the, the space and the speed with which players can play with now, if he comes along for this era, he is an absolute terror. Yeah. I, um, I'll be honest. I um, have that in terms of being ahead of his time there, are, you know, there is a case here with that. I think that he, uh, uh, the scouting report described as very shifty with speed to burn. Um, maybe in today's game with less clutching and grabbing and interference, he would have succeeded, um, which I think is, is true. I, I remember him being, you know, have, having those wheels and having been able to, you know, to kind of go around the defenseman and, uh, and be able to make plays. Uh, definitely had that. Um, but he was, uh, to use Dauber term, a Band-Aid boy. Um, he was a Hall of Famer as a Band-Aid boy. Um, there were just a ton of injuries, uh, groin injuries later in his career, um, all sorts of, uh, all sorts of other, other issues here. Um, you know, not to mention the, uh, um, he was a, I mean, when I say he was a frustrating play, player to own in uh, in fantasy. Um, part of the reason was was his injuries. Another one, and a little story to tell about Martin Havlat here. Um, the very first year I was playing in in Yahoo, which I think was around 2003, um, I just drafted my team, and that included Martin Havlat. Unfortunately, Havlat was in the middle of a contract holdout and wasn't sure whether he was going to play that year. It was getting to the point where he was, uh, I think, getting ready to jump on a plane and go back to the Czech Republic um, because the senators weren't um, the senators weren't able to come to terms with him. So um, I made the rookie mistake of dropping him about 24 hours before he and the Sens finally agreed to a contract. <laughs> so I dropped him, you know, realized, oh crap, one of those old crap moments where he does sign and I'm like scrambling back to the waiver wire. And of course I've got to wait for him to clear. And of course, you know, being the opportunist, my buddy is, he, uh, my buddy picks him up and sure enough, he's the one who, uh, the rewards with Havlat. So um, I don't know if anybody out there is, you know, feels frustrated, you know, that they felt like they felt like, there could have been more from Havlat and that could be maybe part of why we could say he was ahead of his time because maybe in this current NHL, maybe he would have succeeded a bit more. Um, you know, you use the comparison back to the Sedins, um, the rule changes after the, uh, the season long lockout were really, 
when the Sedin's career started to, to pick up and become those rule changes, now that the NHL has adopted more of a, a, a speed type of game or you know, having speed to burn is more critical in, in maintaining an NHL career, then I think that's uh, maybe would have helped Havlat. Maybe you know, if he was born 10 years later, uh, then I think you'd see better overall numbers than you had. I mean, still an impressive career. He still uh, came close to 800 games and uh, deserving of um, among this group of being the fifth overall pick. Um, but yeah, there's, you know, we definitely could have seen more from him. Yeah, I still want more. I still think I'm owed about a half dozen highlight reel goals from Havlat. But you're up now for Nashville at number six. All right. Um, I am going to pick another goal. Coincidentally, this is maybe to make up for the Brian Finley pick. <laughs> Although I think I am still going with best player available just in terms of longevity. And that player is Craig Anderson, who I did not know was drafted by the Calgary Flames. Uh, never played for the Flames. I didn't know this until I looked it up. Uh, like Ryan Miller, fourth overall, he is still active, although he, like Miller, he is also on his lat, um, has no contract next season. Uh, so this could be the end of Craig Anderson as well, who has managed to pull out a long career. No knocks against Craig Anderson, because you mentioned it, he never plays for Calgary because they can never sign him to a contract. And he goes back into the 2001 draft uh, two years later and gets drafted by Chicago. Mm, okay, so I remember him coming up with the Blackhawks. That I, uh, I do remember. But yeah, that's. Uh, um, are we still allowed to count players that uh, were redrafted? Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Like we're okay. under the assumption Nashville, Nashville figures out a way to get him signed. Maybe, maybe he mm-hmm. uh, really likes country music and he's, he's willing to come on down there. Yeah. He's uh, I, I remember him coming up with Chicago and he was, he was sort of a people I don't think knew much about him. He was a, I think a target in, in fantasy leagues. Um, but he's managed, and I guess with these goalies is, you know, a lot of the goalies are, are hit and miss um, that are picked later in the draft. He was picked in the third round that year, um, but he's had, you know, he, he's had part of this to not just how effective the, the player was, um, how long of a career that that player has had. And um, Anderson has, um, you know, he has stretched out a career. He's, uh, you know, if you think about it, he's played decade for the uh, the Senators. There might be some Senators fans out there that are listening that might say, ah, oh, he's, he's, he's not, he's not deserving of that, but he's, uh, you know, he's, he's managed to stick around. Um, they've had some, during this decade, they've had some, they've had some good teams. They've had some pretty crummy teams. So, um, you know, but, but give them props, they've, uh, you know, they, they've decided to stick with them all this time. So I think with these, uh, picks I think really longevity is uh is key I mean some players will have uh, will have their their careers cut off early by injuries um but you know you, you got to give props to the guys that can really stick around for uh, have a long career availability is the best ability I'm up at number seven with the Washington Capitals and I'm gonna take Radim Verbata all right, that's uh, that's who I had there as well. So another one of those late round steals. Yeah, seventh rounder. 
he actually gets heart votes one year, that one year uh, in Phoenix, that I think that Coyotes team goes to the conference finals uh, that year as well. Two 30-goal seasons. He play, it, it takes him almost a decade until he finds a home. He's on a Colorado team in 2002 that makes the conference finals, but he, he barely plays. And then he kind of bounces around until really finding his home in Phoenix. But he, he plays 16 years, and at least half of that is as a legit top six winger, probably like a lock for 20 goals. And he even gets a cup of tea with the Sedins. Where does Verbata rank uh, all time among Sedine line mates? Um, for those of you who will think he is their best line mate, I'm going to say he's not um, because he was really only on, he was with the Canucks for two seasons and he was really only on the Sedin line for one season, their first season. And he had a pretty impressive one. So he's, uh, you know, in terms of top, in terms of, I would say he's top three um, in terms of quality of, uh, of Sedin line mates. Um, he had thir- that line, that year he was on their line, he had 31 goals, 63 points. Um, you know, he went to the all-star game that year. Um, and then for some reason, Willie Desjardins wanted to spread out the scoring on the Canucks, you know, maybe just to try to realize there was a diminishing level of talent on the team and, uh, try to get more out of players. And he liked to distribute his ice time very evenly. Uh, so, you know, Roboto wasn't happy about that. He said part of the reason he signed with the Canucks was so that he could play with the Sedins. Uh, not happy. He dropped to 13 goals in 63 games, uh, was a minus 30 that year. And I think his season finished early with an injury uh, because of that. I don't know if that was a real injury or just a sort of a phantom, just kind of let you, uh, we'll just kind of shut it down early. Uh, Waving the white flag. Yeah, just kind of knowing that he's not going to come back next season kind of thing. So I remember reading a book once, I think it was a baseball player's autobiography, and he said that there's this, you know, exorbitant number, there's more phantom injuries out there um, than are reported of players that are just, they just say, you know, just stay home. So yeah, he's... If, if you want to know who I think the best line mate for the, the Sedins was, um, it was Alex Burroughs, um, who was their line mate at their, the line mate of the Sedins at their peak. Um, when you look at their best seasons, the Sedins, uh, there was a window of about four years uh, where they were at the top of their game. That was when Alex Burroughs was on their line. And Burroughs worked because he could drive to the net. He was not afraid to get to the dirty areas. The Sedins played more of a, a cycle perimeter game you know, Burroughs during that time had four 25-plus goal seasons, mainly um, playing on that line. And, you know, people, fans of other teams would probably remember, you know, best remember Burroughs as a player who would, you know, get under uh, opponent's skins and would just generally piss people off. Um, but he was uh, he was their best line mate. I have to say, without a doubt, their best line mate. I've got to give an honorable mention here to Anson Carter who was in his one season with the Canucks scored a career high 33 goals. That was 2005-06. Carter, the following that season, did not make the right choice. He should have resigned with the Canucks, knowing he had this great opportunity with the Sedins, but instead he decided he was going to um, go with the money and sign with Columbus instead. And then basically that was his final NHL season. He disappeared after that. Well, and as I understand it, Anson Carter kind of set this standard 
for the type of player that Vancouver was looking for to team up with the Sedins for years to come based on on what a quality season that he had with them that one year. And it's not until Burroughs that they really find their long-term answer. And I think the, the, the thing that made Burroughs work so well there was uh, like you talked about going to the dirty areas, but just being such a proficient four checker really changed the dynamic of how you could use the Sedins because now dumping the puck in is an option for that line as well. And he's going to go get it back for you and then they can, they can run their cycle game. So this brings you up at, at number eight with the Islanders. All right. So my next pick is going to be, this is a player who was drafted in the first round and was even picked high in the first round. Um, and I'll just say that the Islanders are going to select, it was a player that they had selected, uh, this player being Tim Connolly. So they're going to redraft Tim Connolly just a little bit later. There was, uh, you know, just to summarize Connolly, there was a lot of potential uh, very early on in his career. It looked like they had something, uh, but unfortunately injuries got in the way. I read a very interesting piece on the uh, Athletic about the career of, uh, of, of Tim Connolly, um, really a, a Band-Aid boy probably even more so than Martin Havlat, um, but it just shed some light on some of the struggles he had throughout his career in, in battling concussions and the other injuries that I had. So maybe I've got a soft spot in my heart for Tim Connolly here. Yeah, Connolly, you talked about, you know, wanting more from Havlat. I certainly want more from Connolly because he had, he had some really good runs there. He actually had, he never really puts up much in the way of points because of those injuries. But his points per game over a five-season run spanning six years, because he loses an entire year to, to injury in there, uh, he scores 208 points in 234 games, which is a 73-point pace. So imagine he actually does that for five years, and he was really healthy his first four years in the league. He only misses three games. But then he gets traded from the Islanders, and then the injuries start to pile up in Buffalo. Tell me a little bit more about Connolly. Yeah, you're right. I was going to mention the first few years in his career where he was uh, um, he was mainly healthy. Um, then he ran into um, he ran into various injuries. Yeah, the concussion problem um, missed uh, 2006 seven. Only played two games, so he missed virtually the entire season. Um, spent most of his, even though he was drafted by the Islanders, uh, spent most of his career with the Sabers. Um, was on some pretty good, good Sabres teams. Uh, I was going to mention during the, the, the Miller, uh, when we were talking about Miller, um, that this Buffalo team that he played for about from about 2005 until uh, about 09 was, it was a pretty good team and one that um, looked like a Stanley Cup contender. I think they made the conference finals in, in back-to-back years, but um, in true Buffalo fashion, uh, could not get over the hump. Um, and Connolly was, uh, was, was a part of that team. And I, I think with a healthy Connolly, they, uh, maybe that would have pushed them over the edge. Unfortunately, Connolly's career ended at about age 30. He had one last season with the, uh, with the Toronto Maple Leafs. Yeah. We, we talked about it with Patrick Steffen. I think a very similar story with Connolly. You rerun his, his career a hundred times and he's probably a success story and, you know, 75 of those seasons. Like he's, he's probably an 80 point player in there a couple of years um, and certainly making, uh, making some splashes for those really strong Sabres teams. Uh, 
so this brings me up at number nine for the the second pick for uh, the New York Rangers. They've they've traded up with Calgary to take this pick, and I'm going to take Jordan Leopold. I think this is. Gosh, is this our first defenseman? Uh, looks like it. Yeah, yeah. Okay. Yeah, yeah. I had Leopold a little bit further down. Um, I think there was obviously some excitement when he uh, came into the league with the Calgary Flames. Uh, that this could be a future anchor of their defense. If they had a few young defensemen um, around that time. I think Dion Phaneuf was. Uh, um, starting to come up shortly shortly after him as well so uh maybe a bit more uh although he did he did carve out a uh, a solid nhl career uh made at the age of 34 so he's uh um so there was uh something there played for for a few few teams there yeah i i think that he was underutilized in a lot of ways like he had three 10 goal seasons as a defenseman who really didn't shoot much. He's a key piece playing 22 minutes a night on that uh, Calgary Flames cup finalist team. Later in his career, he's, you know, he's playing sheltered minutes, but he's still playing 20 minutes a night and frequently on on the right end uh, of the possession metrics, maybe a bit ahead of his time as, as a mobile puck mover. Yeah, yeah. Uh, just uh, in terms of my next, my next pick, if we uh, want to jump up to that, I was also going to pick another defenseman. Maybe yeah, go ahead. That, Fire uh, away. Running going here. Yeah. Um, may know if this would a pick that would translate well to today's game, but uh, keep in mind that very few of these players are going to have uh, 20 are going to have 20-year NHL careers, but a player that I think um, really thrived early on um, in the maybe those years, you know, those few years following, uh, this pick at number nine will be Eric Jackman. So I'll say that the Rangers will pick Barrett Jackman, who is a very reliable old-school defenseman uh, during that time. He, uh, he played 876 games, mostly with the Blues, liked his game. Um, I remember watching him in, in the playoffs. There was one period uh, where the Canucks played the Blues, and he was uh, drawn the assignment of of uh, facing Todd Bertuzzi. wasn't an easy one, um, and, the, and the Canucks won that series in seven games. But, um, but I think he, uh, even though he really did not score very much, uh, was still able to carve out a NHL career, maybe brought more of those intangibles perhaps than the uh than the metrics would apply and remember during time too um teams were drafting for size it seemed like you know defensemen uh forwards that they were drafting every year were getting seemed to be getting bigger and bigger and you know if there was a decision you know oftentimes they were going with the maybe slightly less skilled um bigger player as opposed to the you know maybe the smaller player that they had some more doubt on I mean, Jarek wasn't the hugest defenseman those six feet uh just over 200 pounds uh but he certainly played that way yeah, if you could bail hay, you were you were getting drafted in the first round. <laughs> yeah, he uh, it sounded like he was. Yeah, he played for Regina. Um, certainly fit the mold of that. Um, you know that old Saskatchewan born uh, defenseman. Although uh, Jackman was uh, uh, from my home province of of BC, but uh, yeah, definitely 
definitely fill that, fill that mold. Um, over a decade-long career with the Blues, um, finished up at one season with Nashville, but uh, we're looking at a 13-14 um, year run with uh, the St. Louis Blues. Yeah, it's, it's hard to argue with, with Jackman. You referenced his final season there in Nashville. He goes to the cup final with them, so that's a, that's a career highlight. Another career highlight, he wins the Calder in 03, which in retrospect, our, our number one overall pick in this redraft probably should have won it. He had a, a great moment in, I think it's the 2014 playoffs. He scores the OT winner in the first round against Chicago that puts the Blues up 2-0. And you think this is when the Blues are finally going to get over the hump, beat Chicago, and, and, you know, they had some really, really good teams through that run, TJ Oshie and David Backus and those guys, and they lose the next four games in that series. So they did not get over the hump, but that was, I remember being in the bag for the Blues that season and that that was a big winner for them uh, against Chicago. Yeah, um, yeah, there were a number of years where the Blues it was that they were that sort of bridesmaids team. I mean, a consistent playoff team year after year. I think there might have been a, a two or three year gap in maybe the you know around two thousand and five or so where they uh, they missed, but um, consistent you know, consistent playoff team, uh, played with a lot of muscle and he seemed to fit, um, the fit right on the, on the style of play that they've, uh, you know, that they've had for the last little while. Yeah. So that was number 10 for the Islanders. It was a good pick for them. I think he works better than, uh, Bratislav Mezai. <laughs> My apologies. Um, so number 11, Calgary, uh, I'm going to take Martin Erath. Okay, that's not who I was had. I was kind of debating between Jackman and Erath. So so the Erath pick would uh, would make sense here. Um, probably best known as the player who uh, was was traded away for Philip Forsberg, but it's a very good career nonetheless. Yeah, and if we want, like we're calling out old GMs for, for their terrible picks and trades and and takes when that trade went down I was still writing for Dauber Hockey at the time and I actually really liked that trade for for the Capitals and, and that, that was very wrong so I'm going to eat that in a big way yeah yeah I, you know it's it's sort of that one where you're giving up a prospect for a player that you think is going to put you over the hump I mean the Capitals you know in a way they sort of you could see how they maybe needed to make that trade. I mean, this was a, a team that for a long time was, you know, very, very good, but not quite good enough to win the Stanley Cup. And, you know, I, I can see why they, they made the trade. Obviously, it didn't turn out very well. ERAT was, you know, not much more than a rental for the Capitals. I think he ended up going to, he ended up going to Arizona after that for a bit. And, you know, that, then that was it for his, uh, for his NHL career. So, you know, not all trades will, uh, involving prospects will, will age well. So but if you look at his career before that with Nashville, I mean, he had a solid decade uh, with that team. It seemed like you could get, um, you could consistently get between 45 and, 55 points from him so you know fairly not a superstar by any means but a 
seemed like a fairly reliable player, seemed like a fairly, you know, underrated, sort of under the radar type of player. Another seventh round pick too, interestingly enough. Um, there seemed to be more more value coming out of the seventh round than, uh, than, than maybe some of these other rounds, save for the, um, you know, what was left in the first round. Yeah, he had a perfectly fine, but mostly anonymous 13 year career as a middle six winger, which, uh, which is a darn fine pick for, for the 99 draft at, at number 11 overall. Okay, you're up. Number 12, Florida Panthers. Okay. Um, I am going to pick in the spirit of, uh, so we talked about a few players that maybe had more potential than they showed. I am going to pick Taylor Pyatt. Uh, teams like to draft size, and I think that's why Pyatt had been, uh, um, that's why he pushed up the rankings, uh, draft rankings a bit, and Pyatt had plenty of it, uh, six foot four, 230 pounds. But he also had an over, uh, over 800 game NHL career. So I'll let you uh, weigh on on that pick. Well, yeah, it sounds like he had his best years for the Canucks as well. He has one 20 goal season there. And, but I'm going to be honest, he didn't make my, my top 15. So I think you got to make the case here. Okay. All right. Uh, Why well, I like Paul Pyatt. Uh, I definitely didn't have the numbers that, that Erat had. Um, I will say that he uh, he did have a career that lasted, um, I think, about as long as uh, as long as it had. Um, you're going to get more size from him. You're going to get more uh, more physicality as well. Um, he did. Uh, he did have some decent. He did have one twenty goal season. There were some other ones. I think there would be more, more, maybe more than uh, than what he showed. So maybe a second look at the numbers. Maybe I'm not. Maybe I'm not that happy with the pick. But at the same time, uh, maybe you're just drawn to the the size, the potential. Teams used him. Uh, he definitely got his looks um, on the on the top six as well. So. Um, particularly later in his career, it looked like he uh, did fizzle out a bit. But yeah, I mean, you're looking at games played here. He, uh, you know, I think is fairly, uh, fairly long lasting um, with that. There aren't too many players, I think, on this list that had, uh, um, that had more games played than Taylor Pyatt did. No, certainly not. Like he carves out a legitimate career, even if it's as a bottom six player. Yeah, true enough. And uh, yeah, I, I, I think this was, this was a tougher, tougher pick to make for sure. Um, it might be a Canuck bias again. Remember seeing him as a Canuck. Um, I, I think there, there could have been more from him. It seemed like there, you know, there were, you were kind of left maybe wanting a bit more, but maybe in an alternate universe, maybe he, uh, you know, maybe he's that big, big power forward that teams uh, desire uh, when they draft, you know, when they draft for players with eyes. Yeah, so you mentioned Canuck bias there. I'm up at number 13, picking for the Edmonton Oilers, and I'm going to go with a little bit of an Edmonton bias. I'm going to take Mike Comrie. Okay. Um, I actually had moved. I am in my top 15 as well. Um, I like this pick. Um, this one was, uh, I mean, I wasn't sure about it when I uh, added him to the list, um, but I remember him, maybe it's kind of the opposite of Pilot, where he did not play as many games as Pyatt did. 
he had, it seemed like he had a more successful run in those games that he had played. He didn't play, he didn't get to 600 games, but he, uh, I remember him being an offensive force out there. I remember him coming up with the Oilers uh, and, you know, he, he showed some talent. Um, you know, there were, there were a number of years, I think they, Oilers, I think it was the early 2000s. Um, he seemed to get in the lineup fairly quickly. He was in there with players. I remember him with guys like Ryan Smith and, Rafi Torres, and I remember who else was on that, um, Anson that Carter. team at the time. And that's right, Anson Carter, too. Yeah, how could you forget Anson Carter? Um, so, um, so around that time, he looked like a fairly talented player. Then he got traded. I remember him getting traded, and then it just didn't seem like his career after that really um, hit the same. Like, good year. I apologize. He did one good year with Phoenix. And then he just seemed to kind of make his way around the NHL a bit. Um, and he didn't sort of have the same level of success or potential maybe that he showed with the Oilers. I don't know. Is that how you saw it? I mean, I loved Comrie when, when he first came in. Uh, I, I should tell the story. I didn't even know this like necessarily at the time. I just, I just knew him as this exciting young player. Oh my God, he's, he's going to be the future for this franchise and he was a hometown kid uh his his brother was also with the franchise but but concussions ultimately derailed his career but but Comrie they draft him in the third round in this draft out of Michigan uh he'd already posted a point per game for Michigan that year and then the next year in college he's like scoring almost two points a game and decides he decides the following year that he's going to jump to the WHL to use the Mike, uh, the Mike Van Ryan rule, which said that if you played college and you were drafted, you could become an unrestricted free agent if you left college for a year. So he leaves college for a year and plays in the WHL for half a season, and he's holding the Oilers over a barrel, like, give me everything I want in a contract, or I'm going to hit unrestricted free agency this summer, and you guys aren't going to have me. So halfway through that season, they sign him to an entry-level deal with uh, like as loaded bonuses as you'd seen at that time. It's ultimately worth up to $12 million, and mm-hmm. they structure it so that it's really easy for him to achieve those bonuses. Plus, he plays really well. So he ends up earning all $12 million over those first three years, and like, he's, he's an absolute superstar right out of the gate. So he jumps from the WHL to the NHL and has half a rookie year playing good minutes as the number two center behind Doug Wade. And then the following year, he has that big 30 goal, 60 point season as a, as a sophomore. And then he, he battles injuries in his final year. And then he gets into a contract battle as a restricted free agent holds out. And now like the, the, the media games and all this stuff, everyone comes off looking really bad after this. So Edmonton finally, like he's holding out. So they agree to trade him to the ducks, but they're not going to trade him unless Comrie gives them two and a half million back in the trade. So like the Edmonton's using the press to try to spin this as Comrie's being greedy. Comrie's now like, well, this is ridiculous. I'm never playing for you guys now. Like you're screwing me. We agree to a contract. So they end up trading him away for not, not a great trade. They end up getting, I think, a first round or an 04 for him. He goes to Philly, and then he eventually lands in Phoenix. 
he has a good year there, but he kind of bounces around after that and, and never really pans out. He lands back in Edmonton for, for a bit of amending of fences, but it, it never really works out for him after those first two exciting seasons. And uh, another guy from this draft class who, you know, I just wonder if you rerun his, his uh, career multiple times, does he, does he end up having, you know, one of those storied careers uh, where maybe, you know, he's, he's a fan favorite for, for all time in Edmonton. Yeah, I agree. And it's all that contract thing too. I, now, now, now that you uh, mentioned it, I did, I do remember that. And, uh, um, you know, if to come to terms and isn't exactly known for, you know, handing out the big money, at least I, I don't think they, uh, they, they were at the time with the cap. Now I think it's a little bit easier because they are a, a smaller market. Um, but, uh, um, you know, but, but yeah, I just think he wasn't, he wasn't the same type of player. There's just something that was not there with him after that. Um, and, you know, I'm, I'm just surprised at his career, like it just seemed like he could have had a better career than than he did. Yeah, he 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 left you wanting more, uh, as many of these other players have. <laughs> I know this '99 draft, Starcross. Okay, number fourteen, San Jose Sharks. Okay, uh, it's my turn. So I am going to pick. Um, I know the player I think had another one who maybe left us wanting more, um, showed some uh, real potential earlier in his career. Part of that may have been his, uh, his placement, um, this being Ryan Malone. Ryan Malone, I had him high on my list. Okay, talk to me about Ryan Malone. Ryan Malone, okay, so he's another power forward, like Pi, who's another power forward, uh, 6'4", with about 220. Um, father played for the Pittsburgh Penguins, his name is Greg Malone. Um, now, Ryan Malone was, uh, I remember him showing some fantasy potential, particularly with the Pittsburgh Penguins, uh, when he played on Sidney Crosby line. Um, you know, that's a great spot to be in. This was uh, very early in, in Crosby's career. Um, only ended up playing 640 games. I say only. Um, he could have line up, had a longer career. Um, he ran into some problems. Um, he was arrested for a, a DUI and cocaine possession um, in Tampa back in 2014. Um, tried to return to hockey a few years ago in a PTO with Wild. Um, unfortunately, didn't uh, it, it didn't work out. Um, so you know, this is a case of a player where um, you know he didn't up didn't end up going to the Tampa Bay Lightning, um, where he uh, um, I guess he was a free agent and he ended up uh, the Lightning Lightning signed him to a seven year contract for 31.5 million. And, but after that, he didn't really, I mean, he had some okay seasons after that, but um, with, with the lightning, but uh, just didn't, again, left, left you kind of wanting maybe a bit more and uh, maybe for different reasons than some of the other players that we had here. Ryan Malone. Yeah. It sounds like a great guy to party with. Um, yeah, I, I'm, a, I'm a fan of what he, like, what kind of career he had. I, I mean, maybe he fizzles out a little bit earlier than you would have hoped, but like he's, he's pretty much classic power forward. It takes him five years to arrive in the NHL. He's out of the league by 33 for the most part. And, 
but gave you really solid seasons in between, like eight, eight solid years. And he scores 20 goals in six of those years. He makes it to a cup final with Pittsburgh, a conference final with the Lightning. And I think, you know, he, he washes out a little bit too early for, for that Lightning trip uh, to the final in, in, in 2015. Otherwise, he'd be in the mix there as well. So I'm up at number 15 for the Phoenix Coyotes. And uh, in, in the tradition of the number 15th overall pick being a complete waste, I'm not going to take anyone. Um, but I'm going to give some honorable mentions to Chris Kelly, Nick Boynton, Douglas Murray, Michael Layton, Nick Hagman, Jeff Finger, and, and, and there's quite a few other players who, who have some careers out of this draft. Ian, that's it for our 1999 redraft. Now, does anything change for you about this order if I tell you that Nick Cronwall was uh, ranked by CSS and yet goes undrafted? Uh, I think you could put somebody like Cronwell in your top 15 for sure. When you talk about some of these names, um, the long career that Cronwell had in spite of the injuries, he, uh, he did have a long career. I believe he did win that Stanley Cup with Detroit. So um, you could certainly make a case for him being in, in the top 15. I would say short answer is yes, I would put him there. So Ian, is there anyone from this draft class that like even though their careers are over you you still believe in them that is still anyone from just in general or uh just yeah just just irrationally like you you still think you're still expecting more from them even though their their careers are over and you know exactly how it turned out um yeah i mean there's uh i mean at the time i mean if you look at the first if, if you look at the first round there um you know you, you kind of there's you know, I always kind of wonder if Pavel Brendel couldn't have had a bit more of a career, um, why he flamed out, why a player scored so much in junior, was picked so high, had so few games. I mean, I'm not saying he would be a superstar, but um, for him not to reach 100 games is just astounding to me. Um, just so that it, the amount of talent that he that he showed in, in junior and just to literally hit a wall in the NHL. So, I, you know, it makes me kind of wonder if there was just some bad luck there. So, Ian, thank you so much for coming on the pod. Tell me, what, what do you have going on at Dover Hockey these days? Um, we're doing the ramblings every night, so even – though there's no NHL hockey season at the moment we don't know uh, if, uh, when we're going to see our next hockey game uh, there are still ramblings every night we're still talking about things we're talking about um, it may be a combination of if the season were to continue and um, but if it's not then kind of treating it as the off season I'm not quite ready to write the season off yet but um, you know, we'll have to wait and see. Trying, it sounds like the NHL is trying to pull out every last stop to, you know, within the medical guidelines that we currently face uh, to have some kind of season. So, but in the meantime, uh, we are talking hockey over there. There's new ramblings every day. We haven't haven't shut it down. So, in case you're wondering, are we still, you know, we still in business or uh, we're still quarantined at home? We are still writing stuff. So, you know, do 
you know, do check it out there as well. Um, everything, a uh, few of our articles like our fantasy uh, game picks, those types of articles you're not going to see right now just simply because there's no games, but uh, you'll see mostly everything else where we, uh, where we do talk hockey as well. So uh, um, do, uh, do check it out. And that's the best fantasy hockey website in the world. Really appreciate you coming on here, Ian. All right, folks, that's episode two of the Steve Laidlaw pod, redrafting the 1999 NHL draft. Huge shout out to my guest, Ian Gooding of DauberHockey.com for coming on the show and giving us some insights from thank you to all of you for tuning in. Please like, subscribe, and review us uh, wherever you get your podcasts. And we'll see you soon for the next NHL redraft.